Well, thank you for being here this evening. Uh, we're going to continue in Nehemiah chapter 1. What you see on the wall here, I, I've been making maps. Like I made this map on my computer for the notes, and then I went ahead and colored it in, which you can't see on your black and white notes. But I'm, gonna, I'm making a, right now it's about 50 pages. It's a little, I'm going to print it on paper like this, and then just like the... Uh, the Israel field book, I did a little spiral. You wrap a little spiral binding down here and you turn the pages. So you'll be able to turn the pages all the way over like this. It won't be stapled. But it'll be colored like a lot of these pictures. This will be on there. These will be on there. Um, and I'm going to get that done in the next couple weeks. I, I want to have it ready for chapter 2. When Nehemiah goes in around the walls in chapter 2, I want you to have that in your hand. And so I'm, I'm getting close to being done with it. Um, I'm kind of excited about it. I've been working on it. Um, it I'm probably more excited about it getting done and doing it than you're going to be when you get like, okay, thanks, colored notes. And, you, you know. Okay, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so, and so, well, thank you. Thank you. That encourages me. And I've got more stuff to, to print. I've got other maps that I've printed. Uh, I just brought these in now, and i got more I'll be bringing in each week. Of course, I wanted to bring them all tonight and show them to you. And I thought, well, that's not the point. It's supposed to, I'm, I'm preparing for class. And I get every, you know, it's like shooting all your fireworks off at once. So I, I'm excited about that. But anyway, uh, what you see here, this is a map of the Persian. Now, the Persian Empire extends further to the east into India. But here's Susa. This is where Nehemiah is at right here. Of course, Babylon. Ezra came from Babylon. And then Ecbectana, that's where Daniel's palace was. And that's where they found, uh, you know, the, the scrolls and things uh, referring to Cyrus. So Daniel was in Babylon, Susa, and Ecbectana. Nehemiah is in Susa right now. The blue lines are the, uh, are the provinces or the satraps, satraps of how they divided their empire. So you can see like Babylon, this is called the Babylon. And again, some of this is, uh, uh, you know, that you don't have like land markers marking it out. So some of this stuff is, you know, an estimate of how it is. But again, at this time, the Persians had gone all the way across. Notice right here, there's Marathon, there's Greece, Macedonia. They had actually crossed over and they had conquered this part. They're, they're actually over here. That's why Greece is going to, for other reasons, Greece is going to end up pushing back through Alexander the Great. Um, again, as you look at that, what's, what's really pertinent to what we're talking about is all of the Persian Empire and how glorious it is, how big it is. That's Judah right there. That's the province of Judah. There's the province of Judah right there with the cities on it. It's divided into, uh, I'll bring this over here just because I'm pointing at it. Here's one of my new maps that I made right here. Oh, I wonder how this looks on the video. It's probably the light's probably glaring off of it. You can't see anything, but that's the province of Judah. You can see it's it's small. Again, it's you know it's, it, we talked about the dimensions. Uh, there's see the yellow cities right there: Jerusalem, Mizpah, Kila, Beth Zur, and Beth Hakerim. Those are the district. Th those are districts of Judah. There's five districts of Judah. District leaders. Uh, and so that's the head, that'd be like the capitals of the districts. And 
that's all going to, all not all those cities, but a lot of those cities and people from those cities are going to pop up in, that's why I did this, are going to pop up in the book of Nehemiah. Also, if you notice here, you can see Samaria to the north, Ashdod to the east, Idumea to the south, and Arabia, and then Trans-Euphrates or Eber-Nari. Those are the provinces around Judah. Those are going to be the ones that weren't very happy when, uh, uh, well, when uh, Ezra shows up or when Cyrus sends the people back and you've got Zerubbabel and Joshua the priest come back. They're the ones that's like, we don't need, otherwise they, they, that's part of their territory. They just kind of split it up or they're controlling it, using it for their own profit. Well, now they've got a territory. Persia's given them permission. And now Nehemiah's going to show up. We're going to put walls around the city, which are going to even isolate that territory from those others and allow them to prosper by themselves. Persia's got their reasons and their interests. Uh, God has got his purpose and his interests. And they, right now they're all kind of playing together. And thus, with the book of Nehemiah, uh, that's what we're looking at. So, again, I've covered up my timeline here. I, I think you probably got it. You've been looking at it now for like two years. Uh, but as you look at that, this is uh, uh, 445 B.C., the 20th year of Artaxerxes. Uh, Artaxerxes, his first year early in his reign, uh, some activities going on in... Uh, Jerusalem, and he said, no, stop, stop fortifying the city, stop building the city, you, you can't. Well, now, 20 years later, Nehemiah is going to take the initiative and ask Artaxerxes to actually go against an, a decree, a, a desire he had 20 years previous, and it's going to work out for him, and he's going to have permission to build the walls, and, and again, it is a fairly amazing story uh, when you consider the Babylonian destruction and the rubble that was left. Israel's been, in a sense, eliminated from history. They've been taken into captivity. They should just disperse and, and be gone, and some of them did. They just intermarried and just disappeared. But they had the law of Moses. They had the covenant, the promises, and they had God's will. They're still a people, and they were able to come back with their records of their genealogy, move into, sometimes moving into the cities that their forefathers had come from, and after going through the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the Persian are, are, are giving them permission and financing the rebuilding of the land. And so here we are in Nehemiah chapter 1. We went through the first four verses last week and did some introduction. Uh, we're going to read through the whole chapter 1 today, and then I'm going to cover some information uh, uh, with the notes. So here it is, Nehemiah chapter 1 in the NIV, the year is 445 B.C., by the time Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem, it's 444 B.C. Uh, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Keslev, November, December, in the 20th year, 445, 20th year of Artaxerxes, while I was in the citadel of Susa. And you can see Susa right here. He's in the citadel. So he's in the fortress. He's in the, in the state house. He's in the, in the main real estate of Susa. Uh, one of my brothers, and we're going to assume it's actually his brother, came from Judah, came from the province of Judah. It's already a province over here. Uh, it's been around since 538. Uh, he, he came from Judah. And again, notice his brother's coming into the citadel. I mean, these are uh, important people. They've got, they've got uh, some kind of government titles. They're working for the government. They're not just, you know, travelers or merchants going around. Uh, 
he came with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant, the Jews that had gone back. These are the key Jews because they're the ones that are going back to restore the temple, restore the land, restore the covenant, including Ezra. Ezra's over there. Nehemiah knows Ezra. About the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. How's the people doing? How's the city of Jerusalem? They said to me, those who survived the exile, they've been in Babylon, they've returned with the purpose of rebuilding the temple, restoring the temple worship, uh, getting the law, following the law, reestablishing the people of Judah, people of Jerusalem. Uh, they are th- th- that those that survived the exile and are back in the province, that province, back in the satrap of Judah, are in great trouble and disgrace. So after all these years, it's 444, 445, since 538, they've had, you know, add 38 plus, you know, 56 years. They've been back for some 80 years, and they are still a disgraced people uh, and in trouble. The, 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 they're being overrun by Samaria, Trans-Euphrates, Edomia, Asha, the Ara- down here, one of the Arabians, one of the leaders, he's going to be causing them trouble or actually using them for their profit. And so they're in great trouble. They can't get a, you know, a, a head of the game. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. I mean, still broken down. And its gates have been burnt with fire, which is an amazing statement because it was burnt in 586, and now it's 444, and they can still look at it and say, I mean, imagine something that was burnt during the Civil War. How is that? That's still ashes. It's like, well, it's been 150 years. What, how can you say it's still, it's still, there's still burnt timber, and there's still rubble from where the Babylonians, especially coming from the north of, you can see a map of Jerusalem, right? They're coming from the north. That's all been, so they, they describe it. It's still got the Babylonian uh, destruction all around it. Now, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. We'll pick this up with the notes now in, in a moment. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the, the, for, before the God of heaven, an important phrase, the God of heaven. Then I said, now here's the prayer that he prays. We're going to go through this tonight. O Lord, that's the word Yahweh, it's capital letters, O Yahweh, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. So that's several descriptors in there of who he's praying to. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. So it's not just he's going to have a little time of prayer. He's doing this fasting and mourning day and night. It's like he's coming before God nonstop for several days. Uh, Praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. He's praying for his people. And, And again, an amazing statement right here. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. Again, that taking personal responsibility for the sins of his nation, for his people. I mean, we know what it's like to take responsibility for our own sin, but it's like what's happening across the street or in the nation is like, well, those wicked, it's like he's connected to it. I mean, I, I've, got, I've definitely, in, in my culture, in my mind, I've said before, have a definite disconnection with uh, the nation's going this way, I'm going another way. Nehemiah saw himself, even though he wanted to follow God, to follow God, I've got to bring the nation with me. 
which is interesting. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws. Notice three things, commands, decrees, laws. You gave your servant Moses. Goes all the way back to the Mosaic Covenant. And remember, that's what the prophets taught. When the prophets came and prophesied, they didn't necessarily bring new information as much as they brought a reminder, their main purpose, go back to the law, go back to the law of Moses. Now again, there's in their teaching, they would expand on certain things. Verse 8, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, and here's the ultimatum, if you are unfaithful, and we'll talk about that word if, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations, but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Basically, what is taking place right there is he's saying, uh, we are right where you said we would be. In, uh, in other words, we could see this in our eyes. We could see this as an eschatological, we were here, you said we were going to be here, and when we are here where we're at, you said you're going to do this. So we were here, we were in Israel, we got taken captive, and now we're coming back, now we're going to go over. I mean, he's almost following a timeline, uh, an eschatological timeline. Again, I, I, I read more into that, but you can see what is happening there. Verse 10, they are your servants. Now he's talking about the people <clears throat> that have been sent into captivity. They are your servants and your people. Now that's interesting because, <clears throat> we'll talk about it again, not, not just anyone can say that. The people of Esau, <clears throat> the Edomites, they can't say that. You know, the, the Syrians, they can't say that. They cannot say they are, they could, you know, say I'm going to be the servant of the Lord and, and in a sense convert to Judaism or something like this. But the whole nation can't say that they're their servants and God's people. Uh, they are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Do notice right there, verse 10, or verse 11, he's talking to the Lord. Be attentive to this prayer, and, and you delight in what we're doing, and then give your servant success today by granting him favor. So he wants success from God, but that success from God is going to come from favor in the presence of, and again, a huge statement, this man. Now, again, you write that, that's even the NIV translation, and that's accurate, this man. It, give me favor in the presence of this man. What man? Well, we're now, the answer comes up right here at the very last part of that, that verse. I was the cupbearer to the king. So I'm talking about none other than God Almighty showing me favor to the, in front this, to this man, or giving me success because I'll have favor from this man. Well, what kind of man is it? It's Artaxerxes. And again, every commentator makes a distinction there of the fear that he's got before the Lord and, and grant me success, and you're going to do this by manipulating this man, I, that's a bad word, but moving this man's heart to show me favor so he does what we want. What I want, because what Nehemiah wants is what God promised he was going to do, is bring his people back. Nehemiah wants that. Well, it's got to go through Artaxerxes, so I need favor from this man. He sees the world leaders as, in a sense, 
tools, puppets, instruments under God's control. Uh, There's no fear of these men. There's fear of God. But he realizes, again, he's respectful. I mean, he can obviously, if he's the cupbearer, he knows how to show respect. He knows how to show honor. He knows how to do things correctly in the Persian culture, in the highest level of the Persian institutions. Uh, But yet he realizes uh, we're all but dust and ashes because the Lord Almighty is working his plan. And Nehemiah himself would see himself also. He's not exalting himself above Artaxerxes. He himself is a servant of the Lord Almighty under Artaxerxes, but he's serving the Lord and everything above him, and we're going to see in this book, and as we've seen it with Ezra, everything in the empire is going to work for the benefit of the Jews because it's, it's that time. So again, a very, uh, in a sense, uh, powerful prayer. And again, as you notice that, there's not, uh, when we talk about prayer and personal needs, there's not a lot of emotion and crying out to God. It's a lot of just history and Bible verses, what God has said, this is where we're at, we're confessing our sins, and now it's, it's just, if you take Nehemiah, you take out of him his understanding of the Old Testament, you have no prayer. If he doesn't know the law of Moses, if he doesn't know what the prophets foretold, if he doesn't know the history of Israel, doesn't know where he came from, why we are in Babylon, he can't pray this prayer. It'd just be like an empty, aimless prayer with no direction. The whole prayer is rooted in from the Abrahamic covenant up through Moses, up through the kings, up through the rebellion of the generations, now the Babylonian destruction. Now here I am, and now it's time to go back. He finds himself in the middle of, in a sense, history or the progression of history we were chosen by abraham or abraham was chosen where the law was given to moses we were the people we violated the law of moses even though we violated the law of moses we're still the chosen people of abraham so here we are yeah we're being punished for violating the law of moses but we're still your chosen people the only people you've got so moses says when the time comes, you're going to bring us back. And well, we've gone through A, B, C, now we're at D. It's time for you to bring us back. And Pharaoh couldn't stop it. Uh, we couldn't st- you couldn't stop, uh, Pharaoh couldn't stop God. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't stop but destroying Jerusalem because it was time. Now it's time to go back. What's Artaxerxes going to do? He's got to help us go back and build the walls. And so just, it's, it's an amazing there, the, the background that Nehemiah has and uh and comes in scripture okay to the notes again in the notes we've got the english standard version typed at the top there in bold um i just read the the text right there in the english standard the words of nehemiah the son of hakaliah now it happened in the month of keslev in the 20th year uh, as i was in susa the citadel that hananiah one of my brothers came with certain men from judah and i asked them concerning the jews who escaped who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. How are the people? How is the city? And they said to me, the remnant, the people there in the province, the satrap, who had survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. Biggest problem he's focusing on, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Again, the, 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 the gates, the, the background of the gates, the structure, the strength of the gates would be stone, but they'd have to have moving doors. They'd have to have beams that came down and locked the doors. They would have to have hinges. So that's, that's all that wood has been burnt. 
And here's a bunch of information from last week. I think everything's there. We talked about it. Oh, I do want to go down to point five. I, I don't know if, if it's important or not, but Artek, point five, Artek Xerxes had himself stopped the rebuilding of the city in Ezra chapter four when a letter was sent to Artek Xerxes in 464 at the first of his reign was sent and it was right here, so the Samaritans send a letter or the people of Trans-Euphrates send a letter. And uh, so if we go to Ezra, go, just go back to Ezra chapter 4, verse 6. Um, and uh, it, it, this is where Ezra's doing all this information of catching up. And it's really a letter. It's out of sync in Ezra's, if it's chronological. It says... Uh, in verse 6, at the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, that would be Artaxerxes' father, who was assassinated, as we know, by someone like his cupbearer, someone that was in his inner room with him, assassinated him, and his oldest son, or Artaxerxes' older brother. His dad and his older brother were assassinated by someone like a cupbearer. They lodged during Xerxes' first year, they, the Samaritans, Trans-Euphrates, lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. That's one story. They sent a letter accusing, and Xerxes is like, okay, just stop this building. You, you've got, your, you've got your, your temple, you've got this detail taken care of here, but now Darius had let them build the temple. But as far as rebuilding the walls, they had been trying to rebuild the city since 537. Five, I mean, it's not like they'd just been standing around. They tried to build the temple, it got put on hold. All they got was the altar set. Then they got that done in 520. Well, once, or 516, they got the temple built. Well, they didn't go, well, that's good. We'll just live in this rubble. They've been trying to start doing something, but it always got shut down. First year of Artaxerxes, someone sends a letter. Artaxerxes says, okay, stop. I can't have a revolt. The next verse is what we're looking at. And in the days of Artaxerxes, verse 7 of Ezra chapter 4, king of Persia, Bishlam, Mithridath, and Tabeel, and the rest of the, his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. And so we're going to find out men like this are coming from Idumea, Arabia, Trans-Euphrates, Samaria. And they're writing letters. Hey, they're trying to rebuild their city. And Artaxerxes' first year, they wrote a letter. And all these people are in their positions are going to come up in the book of Nehemiah. And it's going to be very interesting because they're going to have different attacks on Nehemiah. And again, we'll, sh we'll look at that as they try to shut down this new... Because Nehemiah is just not a, a, a Bible teacher. He's just not a guy that's fired up for God. He is the governor. He is in charge of the province of Judah. And these are his peers that he's equal to as far as being over a province. And they're trying to assassinate him. They're trying to confuse him. They're trying to get him to, you know, say something on a talk show that shows that he was in charge of a, a, a revolt against the, 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 the Persians you know, like a January 6th type event where Nehemiah was like, you know, having a podcast or having a speech and he caused this event. They're, they're, it's all, that's all that's taking place right there. And they're trying to get Artaxerxes to come against him. And Nehemiah is able to navigate his way through. We'll see it in the book of Nehemiah. But nonetheless, this is going back to his Artaxerxes' first year before Nehemiah. The letter was written in Aramaic script and in Aramaic language. And it goes through and talks about that. Rehum, verse 8, the commanding officer and Shimshea, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, king as follows. So you've got 
one of the Rehum, one of his commanding officers over here, and of course the secretary, which as we said before, they were not just a, a, a scribe, they were the ones that reported everything to the king, King Artaxerxes, good and bad. So they would write, but they'd also add personal notes, like this king is not doing what he says he's doing. So here's what he wanted me to write, but here's what's really happening. So he had an open door to Artaxerxes. So whenever there's a scribe, they're writing directly to the king's in charge, the scribe's helping him, but if the king gets out of line, the scribe just writes it to the, the emperor. And of course, if the scribe gets assassinated, well, now you don't touch the scribe. Ezra was in that position. He's a scribe. And here's what they wrote. First year of Artaxerxes in uh, uh, 464. Rehum, the commanding officer, and Shimshea, the secretary, together with the rest of their associates, the judges and officials over the men from Tripolis, Persia, Eric, Babylon, and the Elamites of Susa. So all, they're naming these provinces. All of us, uh, we're seeing this, and all of us agree with this. And the other people who, whom the great and honorable Ashurbanipal deported and settled in the city of Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates uh, to King Artaxerxes from the servants, the men of Trans-Euphrates, meaning all the provinces on this side over here. The king should know that the Jews who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. Now they've already got the altar set, the temple's built, Darius has been there. They've all done all this. This is now 20 years before 444 or 464. So we're, you know, 40, 50 years past the rebuilding of the temple. And they're saying, these guys are trying to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. That's why Nehemiah says, how is the city? They go, Artaxerxes shut it down and we've made no progress. They wrote a letter 20 years ago. Artaxerxes said, no, look at the empire. No one's even thinking about it. They're just abusing our people. But anyway, the letter goes on and says, they are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Now that's 20 years before Nehemiah. So they've been trying to do this before Nehemiah. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid and the royal revenues will suffer. These people are building a wall to keep the Persians out. They're going to take over, make their own little kingdom. And you can, any money coming from this area, you can consider that's gone. You're going to lose all your tax revenue if you let this city be rebuilt. Again, like I referred to last time, you can see, that, you can see a letter like this coming from uh, 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 Valley West Mall when Jordan Creek Mall is trying to be built. Let the city council know that if this gets built, you know, this whole neighborhood is going to just fall apart. Well, that would have been true. <laughs> Because the stores are closing, you know, the, the, the restaurants are closing in the Valley West area, nonetheless. But that's what's, that's what's taking place right there. If you let this go, uh, we're going to have a problem. But they're all blaming him for rebellion. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace, and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we're just doing our, we have no interest in this. We just know you're going to lose money. Right. You're also going to lose money. If they build Jordan Creek, not only is the city going to lose money, you're, you're going to go broke. And that's what they're going to see. And that's why throughout the book of Nehemiah, that pressure does not stop. Uh, we'll, you know, the king will be dishonored. We are sending this message to inform the king so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors, just like they looked for permission to build the temple. Now we want you to go back and find some records of what these people are actually like. 
in these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city. Well, you had trouble with the Assyrians. The Sennacherib attacked them. They wouldn't listen to Sennacherib. Then Nebuchadnezzar tried to rule, had a 605 captivity, a 590 captivity, and finally a 586, a total destruction. These people are no good. You'll find, that, and again, they had cuneiform tablets recording all this information, the history of these areas. They would inherit it from the previous empire. Go back and read those records. The city is a rebellious city, troublesome to the kings and provinces, a place of rebellion from ancient times. That is why this city was destroyed, and it was destroyed for that very reason. They rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, how dumb. Jeremiah was telling them, don't do it, don't do it, and they did it, and they were destroyed. And it's in the records. They rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. We inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, remember, that's what Nehemiah is going to do, restore the walls, they're telling Artaxerxes 20 years before Nehemiah, if those walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates. We guarantee it. If the walls of Jerusalem are built, the province of Judah is going to expand, and it's going to take out Samaria, Ashdod, Idumea. It's going to take out trans-Euphrates, Phoenicia. This whole area is going to be conquered by the Jews. We guarantee it. We're going to lose everything. You're going to, this part of your empire, and again, if you want to put fear in the heart of the king, he's already, when Artaxerxes came to power, he was having already had a revolt in Egypt, had a revolt up in Greece that they came down and helped Egypt. His brother rebelled against him in the, in the east. And so now they say, oh, you want more problems? And he goes, no, no, I've got enough problems. Just shut that down. I mean, he probably spent 20 seconds thinking about it. It's like, he got a report from Egypt, got a report from Greece, got a report from his brother rebelling against him. What's this? They're trying to rebuild Jerusalem. No, no, don't build Jerusalem. I mean, it was, just, it was a snap decision. I mean, I'm ab-libbing here, you know, uh, at, the, at the comedy club or something. Uh, the king re- sent this reply to all these guys. Greetings. This is Artaxerxes' words from 20 years ago. This letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence, because he didn't speak their language. I issued an order, and a search was made, and it was found that the, the order was, go check the records, what kind of people live in Jerusalem? So again, I guess I overstated. It was longer than 20 seconds. He actually did the research. And it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against the kings and has been a pe- place of rebellion and sedition. We're talking about the Assyrians, the, the, the Babylonians. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of trans-Euphrates, who are the powerful kings that ruled from Egypt up to the Euphrates River? You know who they were? David and Solomon. And then after Solomon, it split into two kingdoms. So in his re- right there, that in his records in Persia, he says they have had powerful kings. Now you could throw Hezekiah in there, maybe Josiah, but... The powerful kings he's talking about are who? David and Solomon. I mean, that's in the Persian records from 1000 B.C. Things that today, the minimalists that try to make the Old Testament just while it was just a fabricated story, the Persians, they didn't think it was fabricated. We've got records of powerful kings that ruled all the way up to the Euphrates River. And David, you can read it, David conquered all the way up to here. And then it began to shrink 
during Solomon's reign, and then, of course, Solomon rebelled against God. So he's reading about David and Solomon. They've rebelled against Sennacherib. They've rebelled against uh, the Assyrians. They've rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And in the ancient days, they had kings that actually did what you said. They conquered this entire territory. Heck, they, they may be the next Egypt or the next Greece. We've got to stop these Jews. Uh, they had powerful kings ruling over the whole of trans-Euphrates, and taxes, tribute, and duty were paid to them. Is that true? There's records in the Bible of these people paying David tribute. From, from over here, on Ammon and Moab, they're paying David tribute. David controlled, David, that's why Solomon, they, packed, they stacked up silver in the streets because every, just, everybody's paying them money because they're, they're taxing these people. Uh, so in other words, they were doing what you were trying to do. Now issue an order, this is Artaxerxes, to these men to stop work. Stop work rebuilding the walls. The temple's already built. This is they're trying to build the wall around 464. Stop work so this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Now right there is crucial if you want to go eschatology, because Daniel says there's going to be 77s decreed for your people from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Not rebuild the temple, not go back to the land to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. So now we even see in the pivot right here, if you want to push it, why is Artaxerxes saying, no, stop it? Why is there a rebellion here and, and Greece is having trouble, or he's having trouble with Greece, and now they say, Jerusalem's trying to rebuild, check the records. Oh my gosh, they can become powerful. Stop it, because it isn't time to begin the 77 countdown. And now in Nehemiah right here, Artaxerxes is going to decree, rebuild the city. And you start in 445, 444, start your countdown, you can work the 490 years or the 483 years. It comes right out at, right around 26 A.D. So in other words, he says, stop the work on the city until I so order it. And when he does order it in 444, 445, it'd be 445, uh, that's exactly when Daniel says the countdown begins. You've got 490 years left. In the 483rd year, your Messiah is going to come and be cut off and receive nothing. And then there's seven years left. So now you're into eschatology. Eschatology plays into this verse. But be careful not to neglect this matter. What I'm t- don't neglect this because this could get out of hand real fast. I've already got trouble in Egypt, Greece, my brother. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interest? It's not a problem now, but let's stop. No more building Jerusalem. As soon as a copy of the letter of, of Artaxerxes was read to Rehum and Shemeshai, the secretary, and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. And building of the wall stopped. Now we come to chapter 1 of Nehemiah, verse 1. Someone comes from Judea, his brother. How's the people and how's the city? Is anything getting done in the city? They say, no, not since the last decree of Artaxerxes. In fact, we're being abused by the very people that won't let us build a wall. So that's, that's the stage for Nehemiah. Does that, that makes sense. That's kind of, I think, important background because Nehemiah is just not popping up out of nowhere. Uh, and it gives you a flavor for what he's facing because he's going to walk in on that king that says, they've been powerful kings there before. Stop. Do not neglect this matter. Shut that down. And Artaxerxes, or Nehemiah, is going to walk in and say, well, what I'd like to do is rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. 
And our text is going to say, off with his head. This is a rebellion. This is how my dad died. There's rebellion right in my, right in my own palace. Our text is going to say, well, and we'll see it. Well, how do we do it? Well, what do you need? I mean, he's going to just give Nehemiah the kingdom. He's just going to reverse that entire letter because Nehemiah asks him to. And here's the prayer that set it up. Okay. Uh, it, look at point six very quickly. Without the walls, the general city, that we talked about this, there's no work being done. There's a little map very quickly. This is going to play in real big later on when we start talking about the walls. There's a map of the city of Jerusalem in uh, 701 B.C., during Hezekiah's time. He had a build over where it says the western hill. See that extra wall built over to the left side of the paper. It would be going to the west. That was everyone coming down from the Assyrian invasion of Israel joining Judah, getting protection. So he built that wall. That did, Isaiah watched it. He described it. Uh, that's that dotted wall there. The Babylonians attacked from the north. We talked about this. So that entire wall in the north is gone. That's where, that's where the Romans attacked from. They, they attacked that northern wall of the temple because you've got higher ground above it. You can actually come down. Otherwise, on the right side, you've got the Kidron Valley. You've got to look up at it. On the left side, you've got a central valley. You've, right in the middle of the city, you've got to climb up. Then to the south, that's where the Hinnom Valley and the Kidron Valley meet. You've got to climb up. But from the north, you come from the north. So that total wall on the north was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. The gates still burnt with fire. That whole western wall going around the western hill, I wrote their total destruction and left in ruins. There was some discussion, oh, 1800s and before, even in the 1900s, where Nehemiah built his wall. And there was all kinds of guesses. But with archaeology, the work being done, it became very clear. And so some of the maps that we can draw today, you couldn't draw in 1850 or, or 1920. Because there's very clear that western wall did not get built. It's going to be a, a fairly small city, just a mile and a half around. That whole western, everything outside on that western wall is going to be left rubble. And also, I pointed out last week, down between, by the Gion Springs, the whole terrace there just collapsed. And Nehemiah is going to come around there and look at it and realize, we can't rebuild this. So they're going to build the wall up on the top of the ridge where in the Old Testament, they'd built all the way down. They had terraces all the way down into the Kidron Valley. He's going to go, forget it. Just build it right up here. He's going to do it in 52 days. But part of the reason he's doing it in 52 days, we're not building the Western Hill. We're not rebuilding all those terraces. It took, that, that, that's been being built since the days of, of the Canaanites or, or the, uh, uh, who'd David take the city from? Help me out, I just forgot. You know, David took the city from the, Jerusalem. The city, you know, uh, who lived there? Jebusites. There's, there's, there's structures that Jebusites had built that Nehemiah is going to see. They're just left them in the rubble and built over the top. So that's, that's kind of where he's heading. Okay. Turn the page, please. Okay, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, Nehemiah said that the city's still in rubble, the people are being abused. I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Doesn't tell us how many days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Um, first of all, sat down. That was, was and still is the custom for mourning for the Jews. Uh, sometimes they use low stools. But we've got these verses right here of, of when they start fasting and mourning, they sit. Psalm 137, verse 1 right out of Babylon. This psalm was written in Babylonian captivity. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. 
when we remembered Zion. Sat down and wept. That would probably be a direct. They're not just sitting there crying emotionally. They're sitting down and mourning, going through the ritual of mourning for what took place. And we, and we can see that they not celebrated, but they remembered the destruction of Jerusalem and would fast every year. Zechariah is going to be asked, uh, yeah, the prophet Zechariah is going to be asked, remember, should we keep fasting like we did for so many years? And Zechariah kind of gives an answer from the Lord. But they are fasting in these rituals. Uh, Job 2, verse 8. He, Job, took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. Now when his friends show up, guess what they do? And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. Now why are you going to sit with your friend for seven days and seven nights on the ground? You're fasting. You're mourning, and he's mourning and fasting, so you're mourning and fasting with your friend. That's the sitting. Ezra 9.3. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment. This is when he hears about the, the, the marriage troubles. I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. He wasn't just sat like, <gasps> but he was mourning. He went into the mourning. Uh, interestingly, I put this in here, verse 8.E. After mourning for three weeks, Daniel has a vision while he was standing by the Tigris River. So if we look right here, here's the Tigris River. So here he was in Susa, Ecbatana, in this area. This is just interesting because this is right, this is Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah. These guys are all in the same, they're, they're in the Persian Empire. Daniel says this in uh, verse 10. And it's the third year of Cyrus. So this is one, two, three, third year of Cyrus. The people have already gone back to re rebuild Jerusalem. Uh, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. So that's an indication how long. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, so after three weeks of mourning, here's what's interesting, as I was standing... So you can assume for three weeks he was sitting, and after three weeks of mourning, he's now standing. He's done fasting, done mourning for Israel and the people, and he's standing by the Tigris River. And when he, when he stands up from mourning, it says, uh, I lifted up my eyes and look, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. It has a visitation from one of the angels who gives him uh, a vision explains the future to him. So he spent three weeks sitting, and when he stands up by the Tigris River, God comes and responds. So it's just interesting the, the effect of prayer. Uh, Nehemiah goes just like Ezra, just like uh, the people that had the, the guitars or the harps in Babylon, uh, they, they mourn. Uh, point two fasting became a common practice in Babylon as many of the Jews continued to fast. Uh, oh, read Esther. Esther's right at the same time period here. She's with Xerxes, so she would have been... Now, hang on to this. You do not have to accept this. This is just speculation. But Xerxes married Esther. So when Artax, when One time when Nehemiah appears before Artaxerxes, the queen was also there. It is possible that that would be his wife, but if Xerxes had been assassinated, the queen would still be in the palace. And the queen, according to Persian custom, the wives and the mothers would have, of the royalty would have special places in the palace. And so when Nehemiah approaches Artaxerxes, the queen was also there. That's all it says. But it could have been Esther. 
I mean, because Esther would have been the queen mother, not that she was his mom, but she was the queen mother of dad, Artaxerxes. And so anyway, anyway, before that all took place, in Esther chapter 4, verse 15 through 17, you remember the story of Esther. We'll go through it sometime. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Mordecai says, you've got to say something to the king. You've got to say something to Xerxes, because otherwise, on this day, they're going to kill the Jews and take their property from them. And the Jews can't defend themselves. Because it was, became a law. It was now a national holiday. He says, you've got to talk to Xerxes for us. Why do you think you're the queen? So she says, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Right here where Nehemiah is from. And this would be just, you know, like a few years, you know, 21, 22 years uh, before the book of Nehemiah. He says, she says, gather all the Jews in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days. So they're going to fast all the Jews for three days. And after three days, she's going to go in and talk to Xerxes. Uh, for three days and nights, I and my young women, those would be all of her attendants. So the thing that she's the queen mother sitting on a special throne is not a stretch because that happened somewhere because she's going to ask all of her girls, all of her women who fix her hair, carry her clothes, whatever they do for her, uh, I and my young women will also fast as you do. So they're fasting in Susa. They're fasting in the palace. Then after three days, she says, then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law that I just approach the king on my own. You remember the story. And if I perish... I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered. Uh, so there's a, there's a fast right there for Esther that had just taken place some 20 years before. Daniel 9, Daniel 10, Daniel's fasting. Zechariah 7, 2 through 7. This is where they come after they came back from Babylon, from the Persian captivity, or from Persia, from the Babylon captivity. They go to uh, Zechariah, chapter 7, we went through this, and they say, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Are, now, now that we're back, can we stop doing these fasting? And then, of course, they kind of get chewed out by the Lord because they're so shallow in their thinking. But they're asking, are we done fasting now that we're back? And then one of the prophecies in Zechariah 8, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth month, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth month, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. In other words, these fasts of their difficult times are going to be turned into days of feasting. Uh, and that's part of a prophecy of the future. Okay, he refers to as, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And the God of heaven, as we've talked about before, is, is a Persian phrase used by the Persians alongside of Yahweh for the God of heaven. And it was kind of like this, this connection that the Jews had possibly with the Persians' view of the spiritual is there's a God of heaven and the Jews like, yes, that's our God, Yahweh. So in front of the Persians, they'd refer to the God of heaven. The Persians would talk about the God of heaven. And the Jews are talking about Yahweh. And whatever you're thinking about, but we've got the same God. And they want to be blessed by the God of heaven. And so uh, you can see uh, Cyrus's decree in Ezra chapter 1, verse 2 and 4. Cyrus refers to the Lord, the God of heaven. when he says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. When he sent this cylinder out, this cylinder right here, 
and the decrees, especially the Jewish copy, it says on it, Yahweh, the God of heaven. So the God of heaven is, in a sense, a Persian title, potentially. And when he talked to the Jews, he knew that, okay, you call him Yahweh, Yahweh, the God of heaven. Uh, For example, someone could say, we believe in the creator God. I would say, okay, the creator God, Jesus, you know, it'd be like taking, you recognize the creator? Okay, we have the same God. You have a creator, we call him Jesus. And that's what the Persians were doing. Uh, 17 of the 22 occurrences of the God of heaven occur in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel. So Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel use that phrase over and over with their Persian and Babylonian leaders, which is just interesting, giving context to this. Uh, Turn the page. Chapter 1, verse 5. And I said, here comes the prayer. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven. So right there, you see it. O Yahweh, God of heaven. He he uses the Jewish reference, the covenant name of God and the God of heaven. And then he continues describing him, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And now we've got right here, you've got, you know, Yahweh, the God of heaven, great and awesome God. And that idea is he is to be feared. I mean, some gods, uh, you know, the little mini gods and all these little demon wannabes, you don't fear them. You, you fear Yahweh. But after that, it says, who keeps his covenant. Now, just, just watch this. To keeps his covenant and steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commands. This covenant, then it's written in the English standard, steadfast love. And then it uses it again with those who love him and keep his commands. And then he's going to have keep commands. And there's going to be, again, a positive response from God. This is steadfast love. This is the Hebrew word hasid. This is a love that is a covenant love. Uh, I've got it written down there. It's point, point two. Steadfast love or mercy, depends how they translate it, is from the word Hasid. I've got it in a, uh, a, 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 it's underlined. It's the first one underlined on the right side. You can see the word Hasid, Wa Hasid. It's, the, it's translated mercy in the transliteration or in the, the Hebrew notes there. Um, steadfast love or mercy. In other words, this is covenant love. God, for these people, God is going to have mercy faithfulness to them because of a covenant this covenant is what covenant the abrahamic covenant i will make you a great people i will do these things then down here he's going to show another type of love and that i've got that underlined right there uh the word love in the in the hebrew it's, it's you love who those with observe your commands and that word is a, a, do I have it written in notes right here? Um, I never wrote, yeah, yeah, there it is, point three. That word love, if you're with me, you love those who observe your commands. Now, if he gives you commands, I will love you if you keep these. This right over here, unconditional. I am going to make you a great people. Now, it's going to be a process, but I'm going to get it done. Now, the Mosaic Covenant. This is the law. 
And I've got written right there for you. Uh, I hope I got it written down there somewhere. Somewhere I wrote it down. It's, uh, it's Galatians. If you're under the curse of the law, anyone under the law is under a curse. Oh, I, it's coming up with the word if. But anyway, this is the law of Moses. So this is the Abrahamic covenant. You are the people of God. And if we keep your covenant, you'll show us this love. And that word love is used, for example, Abraham's love for Isaac, Genesis 22. Isaac's love for Rebekah. Isaac's love for Esau. Rebekah's love for Jacob. It's like this, this relationship love, not a covenant love. Now, ideally, you can have both. Marriage it hopefully is both. You've got a covenant, Hasid, faithful love. It's like, well, I don't really love this person. Well, you got a contract with them. You signed the contract. You've got Hasid. Show faithfulness to this. And that is what marriage should be, should be this. That's why the, the, the traditional, in better or for worse, in health, sickness and in health, that's because we're doing, well, I just want to love somebody. Now, if they're sick and, and they, they, they don't, they're not nice, uh, I don't love them anymore. Okay, right, but that's the, the covenant was, and that's God's got a covenant with Israel. And, of course, they don't, they, it's like God's got to carry this thing across the finish line. Uh, you understand what I'm saying. This is a covenant type of love. This is a, uh, the relationship. Now, again, I can't go into all this, but it's interesting, if you don't mind, point E under 3. In Malachi chapter 1, verse 2 through 3, the word that is used there when God says, how have I loved Jacob? Uh, and that is this word right here. He says, how have I loved Jacob? And he uses this word here of this relationship. And he says, well, like this, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Meaning this, right, this love right here is based and continues because I've got a covenant with Jacob. Esau, once they disappoint, once they break this, they disobey the general revelation, they're gone. So anyway, it, it's interesting. It doesn't use the word Hasid, but it uses this word in this context. Nonetheless, that's what you're seeing right there. See, there's Nehemiah. That's his opening line of his prayer. O Yahweh, God of heaven, Jewish word, Persian phrase, the great and awesome God, we fear you, who keeps his covenant of steadfast love. You keep your mercy, your steadfast love. You're not going to break this Abrahamic covenant. But also, you will show respect or love or have a relationship with anyone who will keep your commands. So we got to keep these commands. And they're under this Mosaic covenant. They're, they've got this, but they're under this. Okay, that's what's being said there. Chapter 1, verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. In other words, listen to what I'm saying. It means basically, give me attention. To hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. So now again, he's praying. This is not just, you know, let's bow our heads and pray. And he prays it. He's praying this. Day and night. I mean, he's going to, it's like, did God hear your prayer? Well, I don't know. It wasn't very long. I mean, I, I know God does not in time. But Nehemiah is not just saying a quick little prayer at, while he's at a stoplight. He stopped everything. Just like Daniel, he's not eating delicate food. He's, he's not drinking wine. He's, not, he's just going over here. And Daniel, for three weeks, prayed like this and mourned. And when he comes, stands up, boom, there's an angel there to talk to him. Again, not encouraging you fasting for three weeks so you see an angel. Uh, but nonetheless, that happened. 
he's saying right here, let you be attentive and hear my prayer that I'm praying now day and night. I'm going to keep saying this prayer so that you know, I, you, I know you'll hear me. For the people of Israel, your servants. I'm praying for the people. He's not praying for his own sin. He's not having financial trouble. He's not afraid he's going to lose his job with Artaxerxes. He said, I'm fine. I'm living in the palace. I mean, I am an expert, expert in wine. I am a wine taster. We'll serve this with the beef. We'll serve this with... And he, I mean, that's Nehemiah. He doesn't just bring the wine like we talked last week. He's the wine taster. I mean, he's been probably gone to some kind of Persian training school on tasting wine. And it's like, we can drink wine. Oh, that's good wine. I like Pepsi too. It's like, whatever, give me the one with the most sugar. I like that one. Well, he's able to taste all these flavors. I mean, he's trained. So he's not praying for him. He's living the life. He's living the dream. But he's praying for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. In other words, he, he throws himself in with them. He doesn't just pray for these wicked people. He's going to identify himself with them, but he's praying for the nation. And he says, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commands, the statutes, and rules. And those commands, statutes, and rules are going to come under this Mosaic covenant. That's why they're in captivity. They're not in captivity because of the Abrahamic covenant. They're in captivity because God tried to form a government a culture, a system with these people. And these are the things you're going to have to do to fulfill my covenant with Abraham. And they couldn't do them. And here comes that list. In the English standard, it's commandments, statutes, and rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Right there, it's the Mosaic covenant. Um, Two, three, and four, the commands is miswat, if we pronounce that like that, refers to the commands of Moses' law. I miswrote that. Decrees or statutes refers to something in the law of Moses along with the laws. Like here's the law and here's the decree on how we're going to accomplish it. And then laws or rules is mispantium, patium, mispatium, which is the legal decisions. It's, it includes the, the penalties, the how much we're going to have to pay, the sacrifices. It's, it's the legal side of the laws. And so they've, they've violated the commandments, the statutes around the commandments, and then the enforcement of the legal side of those laws. We drop the ball on the whole system. Uh, in fact, you could say the, 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 the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch, everything just fell apart. And that's why we're in Babylonian captivity. Chapter 1, verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, here, here this is important, two things. He, he sums it all up in these two things. Remember the word you spoke to your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. He says, do you remember that? Because here we are. We, we, we violate, you know, he just talked about them sinning and violating the commands. The people, my, me, my fathers, the generation. And now, now do you remember your word? You said that if we disobey you, we'd end up in captivity. We'd be dispersed. And here we are, just like you said. Chapter 1, verse 9. But you also said, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the Utter, though, though your outcasts, your, your exiles, are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen. And the place that I have chosen is Jerusalem. He's going to take them to the place, build the temple at the place I show you. 
if we, you scatter us, you're going to bring us back to this place, Jerusalem, to make my name dwell there. In other words, they're to be his representatives there on earth. So right there, the two sides of it. If you disobey, I'll send you away. But then when the time comes, I'm going to bring you back. Now, the next box here is the Hebrew of that text. And it's interesting because the word if, I've got it there. See the square? And the word if is in brackets. And I've got it underlined so you can identify it. It's not in the Hebrew. No if in Hebrew text. This is more direct. For example, that would read more like this. When, when he's quoting God's word through Moses, he's saying, you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. So when Moses is speaking for God, he looks at the people and says, you are unfaithful, you will be scattered. He doesn't give them, maybe so, maybe not, we're not sure. If you don't do this, it's like he looks at them, you're going to get scattered. It's like taking one look at you, you're going to lose every game this year. If you don't play well, you won't win any games. Now, you can't play well. You're going to lose every game this year. I mean, that's, that's what's being said. So it wasn't like, well, we had a chance. No, no. When he chose you, there's only one thing that's going to happen. You're going to go into captivity because you're going to fail. Ah, and that's where I wrote down, uh, give me a break here, Galatians. You see Galatians? Yeah, point 2D. Just this follows along the lines here, Galatians 3.10. This is why Paul can say to Christians in Galatia and Antioch, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. What curse? Here's the law. You are not going to keep it. You're going into captivity. But we haven't had a chance to try. You can't do it. I might as well take you into captivity right now. And so now you get Christians say, well, I'm going to follow the law. Paul says, come on, folks. Haven't you learned from history? I mean, this whole thing is God is, we can't do this. Anyway, that's Galatians. And then, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. And, of course, you can't. Um, we'll pick this up next week. I, I see a, uh, the secretary of Generation Word standing at the door. Uh, secretary, I should say, the associate teacher, the, the leader, the... Okay, anyway, I, I've got these right here, all these promises of I will gather you throughout. It's amazing. I, I'd like to read through them and just have you hear them, uh, especially Jeremiah and Ezekiel continue saying, I'm going to restore you. Um, uh, that chapter 1, verse 10, they are your servants, meaning they are the Abraham's people whom you have redeemed. And when did he redeem them? When he brought them out of Egypt. He chose Abraham's people. He redeemed them out of Egypt. And here we are. We're ready to go back. And then here's a great verse, verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And I'm praying, but he's not the only one praying. Maybe his brother's praying. Maybe some of those other guys are praying. It doesn't say that, but it does give the impression here that prayer of your servants along with me uh, who fear your name and give success to your servant today. See right here, one thing, give success... You give me success today, and watch this, and grant him or me mercy in the sight of this man. I need you right now to do what the Bible says, what the law of Moses, we're ready to come back, give me success, and right now I need favor in the eyes of this man. What's he talking about? Well, it says right there, I was the cupbearer. <laughs> I'm the guy who the king talked to the most, and... uh I just got to walk in there and 
tell him what I want. And uh, God's on my side. So he knows he's got history or the prophecies of history. He's got God's will. Uh, and he's got, you know, the, the heart of the king is in God's hand. So that's just a, a great line. Give success to your servant today, Yahweh, and grant me six, or mercy in the sight of this man. He's talking about Artaxerxes. And uh, we'll pick that up next week. I talked about this picture. See page six. There's a Persian king sitting on the throne. There's the scepter he held on the back of page six. And that's what the scepter he would have reached out and given it to Esther to touch so Esther could talk to him. Otherwise, he would have not given it to her. She would have taken off and executed. And there's a, 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 some kind of a servant standing with his hand in front of his mouth. And as I was referring to last, year, last week or two weeks ago, uh, it's not like, it's like he's blowing a kiss to him or he's like, you know, covering his mouth. Uh, they say that is he's trying to, one of the etiquette things was you don't want to offend the king while you're talking to him with bad breath. You're close enough that he could smell you coming into this presence and you'd cover your mouth. They, that's what they say is taking place in that. I just thought I'd show it to you. Again, that's all I know about that. But that is the, that is the, the Persian kings who Esther's going to approach and uh, Nehemiah just got done saying, uh, this man, show me favor. I'm going to go and talk to this man. And see if I can reverse his 20-year decree of stop building Jerusalem, see what, what will happen. I figure it's going to be good. And chapter 2 will, will be that, that moment. I'll pray and we're free to go. Father, we thank you for the chance to look into these things. We thank you for the confidence you put in your servants like Nehemiah to let us see and understand your greatness and, and the authority that you have. We ask that we also would be able to trust you and, and walk in the light that you've given to us and do the things you've called us to but mainly, the Father, that we would live a life that is pleasing to you in our daily decisions and the things we do. We do want to pray for our nation, as Nehemiah prayed for his nation, confess our sins, and ask that we may see a revival, that we may see a chance to be restored to you, at least individuals that can come and have uh, be called the remnant that have been set, set apart for, for your service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for your time.